Discovery Nation. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our established series as we have been for a long time now. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the whole story of the Bible and, and plucking out some of the, the essential topics and stories to kind of give us a full picture of um, what it would look like to be established as a Christian based on uh, the overall narrative of God's word. And where we're at in the story is in Acts. And so we, for the last month or two, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, it's kind of the climax of the story. And um, and over the last couple of weeks in particular, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit and what the role of that. And when Jesus left, went up to heaven, left us the Holy Spirit. And now we get to work through uh, today what the church is and how by God's spirit and and through him he's building this spiritual family with which he's renewing the world and renewing you and I at the same time and so the church is a very powerful deep thing that we get to uh, unpack today and I hope that you will see uh, a little bit more about how the church is essential uh, in your life and in your walk with God and what a privilege it is to be part of one and maybe we'll come to a fuller understanding of what the church is and what it's um, what it's meant to do. And so I'm just going to pray uh, before we begin. Lord, uh, we thank you for your church. Um, you call us your bride as the church. And so we, with, with reverence, approach this topic. Uh, and Father, I pray that we would see um, how you see us and what you longed, how you long to see us flourish as a community and as a people. And we're so grateful for your loving leadership of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be using Acts 2 uh, just to start us off as a picture of what the early church looked like. Uh, it's kind of the first time the what church looked like was, was captured. And um, it says this, Acts, Acts 2.42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give uh, to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is amazing. It's a beautiful picture of the church. You can hear the level of fellowship going on here, the level of camaraderie, closeness, intimacy. Uh, and this is the logical output byproduct of people whose hearts have been captured by Jesus. It's if, if you're if your life is being led by Jesus, this is where this is where it takes you. It takes you into loving relationship with others of that where you give of yourself uh, everything since they sold all their possessions, but they were filled with joy and were so happy to do so. And it it really is life to the full uh, when church is functioning as it should here as we see. So <laughs> I have to admit that right now I'm standing in the Sunday school classroom in a church basement completely on my own with a camera. And so it feels a little different than this, but um, it really isn't. Uh, the church isn't so much about what our, how our Sunday expressions look, uh, so much as it's, as it's about the disposition of those who belong to it and how they see themselves in it. It's not something to go to. It's a group of people. And even more than a group of people, it's how that group of people relates to one another and how their relationships are essential to their own walks with God and essential to their own obedience and growth. So, you know, even though we've been online for a while now, I'd like to think that the essence of what the church is hasn't stopped because our relationships haven't stopped. 
And we haven't stopped loving one another, reaching out to each other, needing one another, pushing each other towards Jesus, serving one another. These things have all continued. And to, to the degree that that continues and to, to the degree that we're following Jesus and, and being obedient to him is the degree to which we're being the church. And so, you know, despite the weirdness of this time, I think our community really has continued to be the church. It's been very encouraging. Uh, and so um, well, something that strikes me about this about this passage is that uh, it really does sound like family here, which makes sense because if we, when we're born, we are born into a family for obvious reasons. We have lots of needs. And then even when those needs expire, it's still a big part of our identity. It's, it's a lot of the time that's how we see the world is through what our last name is and our family heritage and history and nationality and all these sorts of important things uh, that have to do with our identity of who we're born into. And in the same way, when we're born again, when, uh, when our, our, our heart of flesh is renewed, um, by the work of the Spirit, through the work of Jesus and, and, and salvation, where a good metaphor for that is being born again. It's one that Jesus uses. And it's when we're born again, we're placed in a family also, and it's called his church. And, you know, in the early days, just like when we're actual babies, we have a lot of, we need a lot of help in our infancy. And so the people of God are there to come around us and disciple us and love us. And then even as we, you know, uh, uh, learn more things and perhaps have more less concrete needs and less questions, you know, as we grow up, it's still a massive part of our identity and we get to give back to it and have our own families. And it's just, it's, uh, the metaphor works well in terms of how God gives, uh, when we're born, we're born into a family. So congratulations. If you're a Christian, you're born again Christian, you're born into the church. This is your family. And it's, it's kind of like a non-negotiable. You don't really get to choose whether you have a family or not when you're an infant. Kind of the same uh, with, uh, with, with spiritual family. So I, I hope that's good news to you. But it, it actually is, a, is an important point that the idea of being part of a family, that might have mixed, you might have mixed feelings when I say congratulations, you're part of a family. Because sometimes families are messy places. And perhaps your own nuclear family hasn't been a smooth uh, thing. And uh, there's a little bit of reservation when I say something like, congratulations, you have a family. And of course, it makes sense because the relationships that are the most meaningful and deep are also the ones that have the potential to hurt us the most. And unfortunately, that's also true of our spiritual family. Sometimes even at a deeper level, uh, where there are uh, <laughs> the same tensions that we feel in, in nuclear families of that level of love that is the level of love and intimacy that is the best and also the worst actually sometimes happens in the local church where uh, it's also a family. And at times, that deep level of love that we see here, in, even in Acts, can feel a little invasive. It's almost like sometimes you feel like you're the rebellious teenager and your mom's just on your case again. And that there's, <laughs> there's similar parallels into the church. And when I, sometimes when I read this Acts verse, I'm like... Uh, I feel like me and my Western individualistic mindset would feel very smothered being part of an Acts 2 church. Wouldn't you? Like, have you ever thought about it that way? Like, wow, they're really close. And you go, mm, isn't that beautiful? And then you read, it's like, oh my goodness, they sold everything and they spent every day together. Like, did they have any space? <laughs> like, did they have pers- Did they have boundaries? Like, my D group is an hour every every other week. You know, like, it's like these people are, these people are, not, it's, it's more, it's more than what I do with other people. And I go, man, would I fit into an Acts church? Or would I feel as though there'd be like a level of invasion into my personal bubble and privacy that would be less than ideal? Probably, actually. So 
if you've been part of the church for a while, so maybe you've noticed this, but people tend to really love each other. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a good church, people love one another. And that always has this downside of claustrophobia and invasiveness. I'm, I've been guilty of loving people a little too much. Well, maybe not so much too much as anxiously and you overstep and you do it wrong and you, and you, you poked your nose where you shouldn't have. And, uh, but it's all kind of, you know, you kind of feel like that, that parent who has a, maybe a rebellious teenager and you overfunction in trying to help them not go through hard things. And I've definitely been that parent, overfunctioning parent inside the church. And it sucks. And you're like, ah, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. And I could have loved you better in this way. And I was definitely anxious in this way. But I know that I was doing all that stuff because I really loved you in the same way a parent probably has lots of their own critiques of their parenting. But it's like, ah, you're kind of, you, I'm all you've got. So if we if we look at this, it's like in a, in a family, someone cared enough to risk ticking you off a little bit in what you would have wanted. Somebody risked that. And in the same way, our spiritual family has a little bit of that where I hope that people take risks like parents of going, how's that going? <laughs> Are you following Jesus? I see this in your life. Um, is that healthy? How... Uh, I don't see evidence of this in your life. Where's your heart? Like all those kind of questions where you're like, man, this could be invasive. But of course, that level of invasion is also some of the biggest gifts we could ever be given. That people would risk that level of, of, uh, of courage to be there, to be family in the most intimate sense. So uh, because of this invasiveness, because of this claustrophobia, uh, I think we have a temptation a lot uh, in our church culture, and even in our nuclear families, but in church culture especially, we have this temptation to wander from it and to drift and to need space and to create distance and to create boundaries. And some of those things are healthy. You know, there's, uh, Jesus went away and to be with his father and he wasn't around people all the time. So we, we have evidence in scripture for people needing space. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with, with um, having some time to, to breathe. Um, but uh, I often... My, my motivation for my wandering or distance isn't about uh, just needing, <laughs> needing a moment to be with my father again. It's mostly out of a reaction of feeling as though I, if I stay in intimate community, I feel exposed and I don't want to be told what to do. And I don't want to know your problems because then I'll have to care about them. And then I might have to do something. God might ask me to be a part of the solution. <laughs> you know. So usually my, my, my motivations for my wandering and distance um, are largely selfish. So uh, I want to read a proverb to you. It's Proverbs 27, 8. It says, Like a bird wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. So in order to understand this proverb, we need to understand two things. What wandering really is and where home really is. What does wandering look like? What does the Bible refer? What does the Bible mean when it says wander? And what does the Bible mean when it says home? And so we're kind of look at both of those things today. First, uh, let's unpack the idea of wandering. What does that mean? It's, it's, uh, in scripture, it's used quite negatively, but I find in our culture, the term wander actually has a, it's been romanticized a little bit. And there's that quote that millennials use all the time. It's like, not all who, not all who wander are lost. It's a very cute idea that we could be on a journey and not know where the destination is. And don't worry, I'm not lost. I'm just wandering. <laughs> it's a nice thought, but I don't know. Most people I see that are wandering actually are lost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they have no idea where they're going. 
and so what what is, what would it what does it mean to be lost? I, I appreciate the fact that our lives are a journey and we don't always know exactly how it's gonna go and that's fun. You know, and it's a it's nice to have some mystery in our lives. But wandering and lostness feels not something that should be romanticized, it should be taken very seriously. I don't want to be lost. I'm okay to be on a journey. I'm okay to not know everything. But lost? I don't want to be lost, especially if I don't have to be. Like, I feel like lost is something that Jesus came to not have us be anymore. So let's unpack this a little bit. I'll read another proverb for you. He, as eight, Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Okay, so this is a little more blunt than the bird wandering from the nest one. It's uh, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. Um, uh, two things we can learn from this. Uh, in this proverb, lostness is being correlated to self-centeredness. So uh, if you are wandering and you are separating yourself, what that means is you actually have a selfish ambition. He who separates himself has a selfish motivation. And this makes sense. You know, it's kind of like the claustrophobia thing I was talking about. Most of the time when I need space, or when I want to distance myself from others, it's because I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about what's best for me, or at least from my own perspective. And we're, uh, you know, that song talks about being prone to wander. It's because we're actually prone to be self-centered. We're prone to think of things from our own points of view. We're prone to be selfish, not just self-centered. And selfishness and sin often lead to distance and they lead to, um, they lead to wandering because it's almost a natural instinct for us to, in our, in our selfishness and self-centeredness and sin, wandering has a lot of perks. Distance and separation has a lot of perks. It's almost you, you think of yourself as even being in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sinned and their first instinct was to run and hide. And God couldn't find them. It's tragic. But it's the logical uh, separation is the logical outflow of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness. Uh, another thing we can learn from this proverb, it says, he, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. <laughs> so uh, it's another, it's, uh, firstly, um, separating yourself is selfish. Secondly, it's just not smart. Like he quarrels against sound wisdom is a very polite way of saying it's, it's a stupid thing to do. <laughs> it's just not wise. And here's why I feel like it's, it's, it's unwise. Is that uh, we uh, didn't write the story of what our lives were supposed to be about. You and I didn't decide what the point of the whole world was, why it was created, why you and I are created. We didn't write the story. <laughs> and so it would be silly to think that uh, we could separate ourselves from God and others. And uh, it makes sense that that would lead to a lostness because if we're lost, someone needs to tell us where we're going. And a wanderer, in a sense, is looking for uh, it's looking for where they're supposed to go on their own. Someone who's wandering is still looking for a destination. They just haven't found it yet. They haven't, you know, decided what to shoot for yet. Which isn't smart because the world was designed for a purpose. Like there is something to shoot at. <laughs> it's been prescripted to you. Uh, so a wandering heart is a foolish heart because there's actually no reason to wander from a certain perspective. The story has been written, the objective is already set. So what is that objective? 
Jesus would describe this objective as reconciliation, or the New Testament would describe it as reconciliation. Now, separation and reconciliation feel like pretty strong opposites. And our prone-to-wander heart is very, very opposite to a, a strong motivation towards reconciliation that Jesus is really concerned about. So what I want to do is I'll re- we'll read in Corinthians the main, verse, main verses that are on reconciliation. We'll learn a few things from them. So this is the, this is the story. This is the real story that's going on. This is, this is the prescripted narrative that you and I could choose not to buy into, but Proverbs is saying it'd be foolish if you didn't. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. So this is the born again idea. You're, the new is here, you're new. All this is from God, who reconciled to us, uh, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So Christ is how we are reconciled, okay? So the whole purpose of Christ dying for you and I and being resurrected is to reconcile us to God. That's why he did it. It's the, it's the only motivation. I mean, you could say it's love would be a great one, but this is being even more specific. It's like, yes, love, but, but remember, love is about closeness. Love is about reconciling two of you so you can be together forever. And this is why Christ died. That's a big deal. And moving on, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only uh, is, is the point of life to be reconciled to God, it seems as though that this, what's built into that point is to, is to be, uh, is to tell everybody about that point. <laughs> like, uh, here's the point. You and God are reconciled now through Jesus. Uh, part B of the point, you get to tell everybody that now. That this is, this is, this is your ministry as a Christian this is your ministry as a, as a member of the church, as you are a minister of that fact. You are a minister and a loudspeaker for the whole, the whole story of the Bible. You get to tell everybody that Jesus came to reconcile you to God. You were designed by God for an intimate relationship with the person who knows and loves you best. There's, no, there's nothing you were designed for more perfectly than that. And there's a way. There's a way, and your sin and your rebellion and your self-centeredness actually doesn't have to separate you from him anymore. He, you can be with the God of perfect love. This is amazing. So um, what, let's just keep going here. What is this mini ministry of reconciliation? Becomes a little repetitive here, but uh, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. That's what we're saying. Congratulations. Hey, guys. Our sins don't count against us. This is amazing. So we get to tell everybody. And again, he says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's committed it to us. It's, this is your job. This is Jesus saying, this is who I say that you are. This is what your job description is. There might be a whole bunch of little nuances into where I send you and the skills I've given you and the gifts I've given you and the places I've put you and the families I've set you in. But overarching goal, you have the message of reconciliation. This is what's going on. And so then Paul speaking, he says, he kind of just does it now in verse 20. He's like, okay, well, let me go first. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors because Paul, and who's writing this letter, is one of those ministers of reconciliation. And so he kind of sets an example for us here and says, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We implore you as ministers of reconciliation, Paul speaking, we implore you, be reconciled to God. This is what's going on. And Jesus made a way for that. This is the point. So now when you hear those things as the point, that's what's going on. That's what Jesus decided is going on. A wandering, selfish heart seems really far from this. The, the appeal and the romanticism that comes along with wandering and um, exploring options, being unsure of who I'm really made to be, you know, all these things that we, I, I get that we uncover parts of who we are as we grow up. I get that. But there's this weird temptation in our hearts to be self-defined and leave things unanswered and not really be so sure about this kind of thing. We're leaving some doors open. You know, like I, I know I'm a Christian, but like, is my, is the whole point of my life really to be a minister of reconciliation? Cause that's, that's awkwardly clear. That is, that is, there's not a lot of room for interpretation on what the point of my life is. And so I think we like the whole wandering narrative because it kind of just leaves some doors open and maybe I don't feel like being a minister of reconciliation today. Maybe I don't feel like going to church because that person really bugs me. And you know, like there's just some stuff that it's convenient to, to have this romantic view of a journey and not quite knowing. And then I read stuff like this and I'm like, man, a bunch of stuff was decided for me actually. Like there's a bunch of things that are set in stone that are non-negotiable. So um, I was thinking about this as, uh, I don't wanna pick the story. I don't wanna pick it. I'm too small, I'm too stupid, <laughs> and I'm too self-centered. I, I am an untrustworthy person to pick the point of my life. It's a scary thing. Uh, and you know, here's what I'd probably pick. I'd probably, if I was in charge, I'd probably pick like happiness or something. Um, some people maybe pick financial success. They're like, I don't care if I'm happy, I just wanna be rich. Maybe those are the same thing. I don't know. We pick some form of happiness usually and if the point of the point of your life and you decide the point of your life is to be happy in this world anyway for as much as you can be for as long as you can be uh you know it's probably best for you to be in charge of your life actually no one's going to get you to that destination better than you you're probably not going to be great at it i mean none of us really are but still you're still the best candidate to make yourself happy as the primary goal of course, this is suspect because your happiness will often fly in the face of other people's happiness and selfishness and selfishness don't usually get along. And, uh, you know, we have the world that we have today. So it's an ill-advised pursuit to pursue happiness because at some point you're going to clash with somebody. I've always thought do what makes you happy is like the most evil advice you could ever give someone because it's like if the point of your life is to do what makes you happy, well, what about what about other people and what if what if they conflict and it's just it's a it's kind of like a one track piece of advice to disaster in my opinion i just i'm not sure that's a great goal but you're still probably the best person to get you there you just you'll have to step on more and more people maybe and 
make it more, you have to make your life more smaller and smaller and compromise on more and more things, but we could probably achieve a decent amount of happiness if we tried. And you roll the dice. Uh, I think that that's, uh, it's scary for a bunch of reasons, but chiefly it's scary because it, it's so small and it makes us God. And I don't want to be God. I'm, I'm way too small. And he's decided these things. And I have to, in the fear of the Lord, go, um, you created me and you designed me for a purpose. And there's like a, there's like a small degree, maybe for, for some of us, it's a large degree of insult that comes with someone prescribing what, you're, <laughs> what the point of your life is. But I do feel like he has the authority. It's like he did make you. He did make me. And everybody that makes something knows what they made it for. There's that classic example that we always hear in transformations every year of carpenters don't, well, after they build something and you ask them what they built, they never say, I don't know. <laughs> like they always know it. It was a desk for this corner of the room. And look at this little thing that it does. Like it, it's... People, people that build things and make things always have a deep sense of intentionality for them. So for sure that would be true of you and I. And here in Corinthians, is telling you, you're a minister of reconciliation. And so when we talk about a community of faith, and when we talk about our, 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 prone, our proneness for our hearts to be selfish and wander from community, uh, what we're really wandering from is from a ministry of reconciliation where God is going, all that we're about it, like uh, all that God is doing ever is he's a God of love. He's bringing things into harmony. He's restoring relationships between us, between him and us. There's this beautiful thing called the Trinity, which we don't have time to ever unpack because it's almost impossible to explain. But God even describes himself as relationship in and of himself, like a, a th three persons in one. That's, uh, man, we don't have time to go here, but he's God is a God of relationship and reconciliation, of pure love. Um, this is who he is, and he made us in his image. So we kind of just get to, we kind of get to live in either rebellion to that, which is ill-advised, as Proverbs would say, or we get to go, oh my goodness, I have a God who loves me, a father who knows me, who has designed me for a specific purpose, and has said that this is where, this is who I am. This is where my joy comes from. This is where my purpose comes from. So I think we need to see it as good news today. So that's what wandering looks like. It's 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 would wandering would be the would be super antithetical to where Jesus and the Holy Spirit are going, where God is always going. So then the question begs to be asked now is where's home? If uh, if we read that Proverbs again, uh, like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. So where is this home? We're going to use Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 to unpack this. And this says this, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Uh, home is being with God. Home is being reconciled to him. That's where home is. <laughs> but here's what's funny about this. is uh, Home is being with God and everyone else. <laughs> I have this, it's, uh, here it says, you know, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I'm like, that sounds crowded. 
that sounds like the claustrophobic Acts 2 church that I've been trying to get away from. <laughs> and so home is being with God and everybody else. Now, I like the idea of being with God. That's, that's nice. I like the idea that I'm his son. And I don't quite as much like the idea that I have a bunch of brothers and sisters. It's less appealing. But this is one of the biggest gifts that God gives us is he goes, I see you and you're my son or daughter. And we're like, wow, thank you so much. That's unbelievable. You've made a way for me. I can't. And then he goes, and look, look at all these other people that I've done the same thing for. And then he, you know, he calls one of them up and shows you. And is like, this is so-and-so and this is their story. And they're different from you, but I've done the same thing. Then he calls somebody else up over and he's like, look, this is, this is so-and-so. And their story is indifferent entirely. And I love them. And then we have two options in that moment. And I feel like my flesh goes, oh, they're here. Oh, they're here too. Shoot. You know, you feel like at a, you can imagine the disciples in Jesus' time going, we're going to go minister in Samaria. We hate those people. We have to go reach, you know, in Jonah. We have to go to Nineveh. You know, like the... Uh, Bible stories are full of Christians, like you and me, going, oh, them too. Really them? Really? <laughs> but then you would, I like to picture the excitement of Jesus introducing you to all these people that he loves. And the res one response is to turn our nose up. The other response is to be overwhelmed with the beauty and power of God and what he's capable of. And how the fact that he loves everybody and invites you to be in relationship with him is not, it is, is points to an even deeper truth, points to an even more amazing reality that God is uh, just the king. And he is so powerful and yet so personal. And so home is where God is and it's with everybody else. And so as we embrace God and his family, and as our hearts are required to look upon humanity with the same eyes that Jesus looks at humanity with, that's salvation for you and I, hey? That's where we know we've understood mercy. That's when we know we've understood the gift that we've been given is when we can look at others and go, I see you through Christ's eyes and I could introduce people just like Jesus introduces you. When we begin to understand that, it deepens our sense of our salvation. And so God gives us this massive gift of going, as you join me and my family, as we embrace the call to be ministers of reconciliation, as we understand the depth of our forgiveness, it builds this amazing dwelling place where, let's keep reading, um, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, this is the church. In him, the whole being is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. He wants to dwell in us and among us because the among us part is one of the most essential aspects of us understanding what he's called what he's called us into. He's called us to be a family. And our salvation would not be complete if we didn't understood how it reconciled us to other people. And if we just see our salvation as something that goes, oh, that's for me, thank you so much. And then we go, oh, but not those people. Oh, but not them. We don't understand it ourselves. And like, do I really need to be around all these folks? 
how essential is the church really to this? How much do I have to love them? And he goes, Jesus would go, with everything you have. Love them as I've loved you. In, in 1 John, it says, you can't say that you love me and hate your brother. You, you can't. You don't get it yet. If you, It's impossible to hate your brother when you've understood how much I've loved you. There's nothing left. This is the church. The church is the place where we all have a full revelation and understanding of all that he accomplished and how much that unites us. And that becomes this massive beacon to the rest of the world going, look at how diverse this group of people is. Look at how broken they are and look at how together they are. Look at how much they share. Something has happened to their heart. They are different. They're different people. They're not just saved by believing like they're not just saved by believing the message of salvation. They're saved by being ministers of the same thing. You can't separate those two things. You can't be reconciled to God and not want reconciliation amongst you and other people. It, Jesus is saying that's impossible. You have to have the mission of it. You can't hate your brother and love me at the same time. This becomes the huge gift. And so I invite you this morning into family. I invite you into, well, Psalm, Psalm 68 says this, God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Friends, a sun-scorched land is a place of self-centeredness. It's a place of judgmentalism of other people. Um, it's a place of rebellion from what God is ultimately up to. And he has a beautiful mission that he's called you and I into, where every tribe and tongue and nation will declare him as Lord and there will be peace and there will be restoration and renewal. No more war, no more discord, no more tears. The place where he is king and where the place of pain and judgmentalism and elitism and selfishness are no more. This is amazing. And the church is called to be this little glimpse into that. So it's a complicated idea to think that the kingdom of God is already here, and yet it's not here at the same time. But I long to, with you, be uh, the already part of God's kingdom. And it looks like in trusting him into what his plans were. And he made a way for you to be with him, and he made a way for you to be with me and everybody else in your spiritual family. So let's live out the fullness of what God's called us into. Let's not sell ourselves short on these things. I'm so grateful for the church. Lord, we thank you of how you have so intricately woven together what you've done in our hearts and the implications of it. And I thank you. I pray that you would always build the church that way, that it would always be driven forward by a, a discovery of how saved we really are, how reconciled with you we really are. I pray that we'd have a deeper understanding of that relationship and it would have this beautiful ripple effect in the way that we treat other people. And I pray that you'd build your church through and by and with love. Thank you for using us and inviting us into it. We're so grateful. And so we celebrate the fact that we have spiritual family. We celebrate it for all its, for all its flaws and for all the opportunities that it gives us to understand more of your mercy and grace and how it really does set us free and how your kingdom really is already here when we love and trust you. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.